0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson, and
0: I'm Holly Fry.
1: We are due for another six impossible episodes. Always a delight. Yeah, uh, I'm glad people enjoy these because they are pretty fun to pull together in a lot of ways. Today, we are going to d- to dive into six topics that listeners have asked us for, but they're so, so, so similar to other people and events that are already in the archive and relatively recent past, that if we did a whole show on them, a lot of folks would probably be listening like, wait, didn't I hear this one already? <laughs> <laughs> didn't you all do this before? Also, a couple of the things that we are going to talk about are really similar to some of the most tragic, violent, and deeply upsetting episodes we have ever done. And I mean that as both a heads up and why we're kind of reluctant to dive into some of these in a, at a deeper level. Uh, I don't know about you, Holly. I definitely don't shy away from difficult and sometimes painful topics. But if I'm going to do that, I don't want it
0: to feel like a rerun. Yeah, especially if they're really, really similar. Uh... Yeah, like we we have
1: done plenty of episodes that have really made our hearts hurt, but I I don't want to do an episode that makes everyone's heart hurt and sounds exactly like yeah. something is indistinguishable
0: from previous ones. <laughs> it, with just like names and dates changed. Yeah, so. Uh, today we have six of those that are very similar. Uh, and the first one is the Donora smog. So Donora, Pennsylvania, is located in a horseshoe-shaped bend in the Monongahela River, in which some people, depending on where they live, might say Monongahela. Uh, this bend in the river is also framed by hills, creating a very fertile river valley. People settling there during the late colonial period made their living farming grain in its rich soil.
1: By the turn of the 20th century, though, industry started to move into Donora. Union Steel built a rod mill that would later become the American Steel and Wireworks. The Carnegie Steel Company also built a number of industrial furnaces, furnaces including open hearth furnaces there in 1902. More steel mills followed, and a zinc works with open smelting furnaces opened there in 1917.
0: By 1948, the heavily industrial town of Denora had a population of about 14,000 people, and some of them had begun to complain about the area's extreme pollution. The river was reported to be too toxic for fish to survive in it, and people described the air as eating paint off their houses. Obvious contributors were all of these smelting operations in their open furnaces. But also contributing were the coal-burning trains and steamboats that carried people and supplies in and out of the area.
1: In late October 1948, an incredibly dense fog settled over Denora. It was way heavier and thicker than the locals had ever experienced before. People started, uh, Noting that the air was burning their eyes and throats, but they mostly shrugged it off at first, since the air in Denora was
0: typically quite bad. But this fog was way beyond what was normal for Denora, and it stayed for five days, peaking on October 30th and 31st. In that span of time, 19 people died. Two of the victims had tuberculosis, and the other 17 all either had heart disease or asthma. And all of them were over the age of 52. In that same period, about 500 people in Denora reported symptoms of serious respiratory distress, and many, many more became ill. By some estimates, it was half of the town that was sick. People started trying to evacuate, although the dense fog made driving incredibly treacherous.
1: The zinc works closed down due to the emergency on the 31st, and then that
0: evening, rain started to clear the air. This disaster brought immediate national attention to the problems residents had already been complaining about. Local resident Lois Bainbridge, among others, began writing to legislators trying to get Donora's industries to either close up shop or just cut down on their pollution. In a letter to the governor, she wrote, quote, I would not want men to lose their jobs, but your life is more precious than your job.
1: An investigation by the Bureau of Industrial Hygiene found that the air was contaminated with sulfur dioxide, soluble sulfur compounds and fluorides. And the theory was that the hills surrounding the valley trapped this incredibly dense pea soup fog and that the fog itself kept all of these pollutants very near to the ground where people were breathing them in.
0: It's incredibly similar to the Great London Smog of 1952, even down to some of the same pollutants. We talked about that event on July 2nd of 2014. And another similarity between the two events is the response. In Britain, Parliament passed the Clean Air Act in 1956. In 1949, Pennsylvania established the Division of Air Pollution Control to examine the problem. A clean streams law followed in 1965, along with clean air regulations in 1966. Federal regulations, including the Clean Air Act, followed the Donora disaster as well. To move on to our next case of, of history, kind of repeating
1: itself. On January 25th, 2016, we talked about the Honey War which was a relatively absurd border dispute between Missouri and Iowa that took place in the 1830s. The point of contention boiled down to a badly surveyed boundary line, which created a narrow strip of land that both Missouri and Iowa claimed
0: was theirs. A similar conflict played out between Ohio and Michigan in 1835 and 1836. Like the Honey War's inaccurate boundary line, the heart of this dispute was an inaccurate map that long predated the actual conflict and only really became a problem when a territory applied for statehood.
1: Back when the U.S. government enacted the Northwest Ordinance in 1787, it had used a map known as the Mitchell Map to draw the boundaries of, quote, not less than three nor more than five states. The Northwest Ordinance went on to say, quote, If Congress shall hereafter find it expedient, they shall have authority to form one or two states in that part of the said territory which lies north of an east and west line drawn through the southerly bend or extreme of Lake Michigan. Eventually, this line that was drawn off the southerly bend or extreme of Lake Michigan would be the border between Ohio to the south and Michigan to the north.
0: However, the southerly bend or extreme of Lake Michigan was, in reality, farther south than shown on the Mitchell map, which folks realized in 1803, the same year that Ohio became a state. When that happened, Ohio just adjusted the description of its northern border. Instead of a straight east-west line, the line ran from the actual southern tip of Lake Michigan northeast to Maumee Bay.
1: Things were basically fine until Michigan applied for statehood about 30 years later. And when it did, Michigan kept the original Northwest Ordinance ver- version of its boundary line, uh, which ran directly east to west rather than being at an angle. In addition to moving the Ohio border south by five to eight miles, depending on where you were along the line, that meant that no- that Ohio would no longer have any access to Lake Michigan.
0: This led to a whole lot of political posturing, passing of punitive laws, raising a militia, and various dust-ups over a piece of land that came to be known as the Toledo Strip. Nobody cut down any bee trees like it happened in the disputed strip between Missouri and Iowa, but there was an incident in which Major Benjamin Stickney and his sons, one Stickney and two Stickney, I'm just going to pause and let that sink in for a moment, (laughs) Uh, had an altercation with Michigan Sheriff Joseph Wood. Wood was attempting to arrest the mayor for voting in an Ohio election, and one of the Stickney boys stabbed him with a pocket knife.
1: Congress finally had to get involved in this whole dispute, which had come to be known as the Toledo War. And in this case, Michigan got a way bigger concession than anybody did in the Honey War. The Honey War basically ended with, okay, put the line back where it was. The end. (laughs) The end. In this case, Michigan did have to give up its access to the Toledo Strip so that Ohio kept its access to Lake Michigan. But then in exchange, Michigan got the Upper Peninsula on the total other side of Lake Michigan. This peninsula lies along Lakes Michigan, Huron, and Superior, so it's access to lots of bodies of water. And this is basically why there's a piece of Michigan that looks like it should really belong to its neighbor, Wisconsin, when you look on a map. you've ever wondered why that big chunk of land that is adjacent to Wisconsin really belongs to
0: Michigan, that's why. The two states continued to have boundary disputes until the 1970s, but today it's mostly just about their football rivalry. And that, I I
1: don't follow football, so I know that's a rivalry that exists, and that is all I know. Uh, We're in pretty
0: much the same boat, except you knew that was a rivalry that existed. Yep. Uh,
1: (laughs) So... That's a kind of lighthearted place to end. We are going to take a brief break for a word from a sponsor. And then we're going to dive into one of the uncanny similarities of uh, one of the most upsetting episodes I have ever worked on on this show. Your to-do list can really seem out of control. I know mine certainly does. There is so much to do and so little time. And there is one thing that you can check off the to-do list without spending so much time on it. That is going to the post office thanks to Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer and printer. Stamps.com will send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you need for any letter or package for any class of mail. You'll never waste valuable time going to the post office again. You can do everything right from your desk with Stamps.com. So if you do not have time to leave your desk, it does not matter. Just print the postage that you need, put it on your letter or package, and then hand it over to the person who delivers your mail. You are done. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF for this special offer. That is a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's stamps.com and enter stuff. The community of Rosewood was established in central Florida around 1870. It started out as a logging town harvesting red cedar that would be delivered to pencil factories in Cedar Key on the Gulf Coast, which was about nine miles away by railroad. But after a few decades, that supply of cedar trees for which Rosewood had been named had basically been exhausted. The pencil factories closed, and many of Rosewood's white families moved to the nearby town of Sumner, which was home to a newly established
0: sawmill. By around 1900, Rosewood had become an independent, predominantly black community nicknamed the Black Mecca of Florida. Most of its black population worked for small, black-owned farms and businesses located in Rosewood. The black population numbered about 300.
1: On Monday, January 1st, 1923, Fannie Coleman Taylor, who was a 22-year-old white woman who lived in Sumner, alleged that a black man had attacked her in her home, although she couldn't give many details about what had happened. Some of her neighbors said that they had seen a white man leaving her home, and there were also some rumors that she was having an affair while her husband was away at work. But nevertheless, she wasn't really questioned more deeply about it, and most people in Sumner took her at her word. Soon,
0: rumors started to spread that a black man had raped her. Fanny's husband went to Levy County Sheriff Elias Walker, and they assembled a posse of white men to go after the alleged perpetrator. The sheriff brought in bloodhounds from a nearby prison camp. They had decided on a man named Jesse Hunter, an escapee from a chain gang, as their suspect. The bloodhounds led
1: them to the empty home of Aaron Carrier, who was actually at his mother's house at the time. The posse found him there, and they planned to lynch him. But the sheriff took him into protective custody and sent him to a jail in another county 40 miles away to try to keep him out of harm's way.
0: However, at this point, that posse had grown beyond the sheriff's ability to manage it, and it effectively broke away from local law enforcement to become a vigilante mob. Soon, the vigilantes captured Sam Carter, a black man from Rosewood that they suspected of harboring Hunter. They hanged him from a tree before shooting and killing him, and then they repeatedly shot his body.
1: On Thursday, so this original accusation had happened on Monday now we're on Thursday, a mob of about 30 white men went to Rosewood because they had heard that someone there was harboring Jesse Hunter. They had also heard that Aaron Carrier's cousin, Sylvester, had been making threatening statements. The New York Times had quoted Sylvester as saying that the attack on Fannie Taylor was, quote, "...proof of what Negroes could do without interference." Although it really doesn't appear that anyone from the New York Times had ever spoken to the man. Instead, it seems like this quote was another fabricated rumor that had spread among the white community and then been reported to the newspaper as fact. Carrier also had a reputation among the white community for, quote, not knowing his place among white people. So, with all this in mind, this mob converged
0: on the Carrier home. They shot and killed the carrier's dog before they broke in the door. Sylvester Carrier immediately shot and killed two men as they tried to invade his home, and this led to a lengthy standoff in which the mob fired indiscriminately into the house, wounding several people who were taking cover inside. Both Sylvester and his mother Sarah were killed, and four white men were wounded before the mob ran out of ammunition, retreated, and burned a church and several houses on their way out of town. Sylvester Carrier was
1: almost certainly the only gunman in that home, but in spite of that, word started to spread that Rosewood's black population was armed and aggressive. A mob of about 200 armed white men, including participants leaving a Ku Klux Klan rally in Gainesville, Florida, and people from out of state, soon descended on Rosewood.
0: Over the next week, this mob rampaged through Rosewood, destroying several businesses and every home in which a black person or family lived, as well as shooting and killing resident Mingo Williams. Most of Rosewood's black residents fled, either hiding in nearby swamps and forests or by taking refuge with a few sympathetic white families, knowing that any attempt to physically resist would be met with even more violence at the the hands of their white attackers. Two white train conductors, John and William Bryce, evacuated women and children to Gainesville.
1: By the end of the week, at least six black residents of Rosewood had been murdered, although some sources cite numbers as high as 40. Local law enforcement was aware of all this violence, and while apparently not actively participating in it after that first apprehension of Aaron Carrier, The local police really did nothing to stop it. They instead focused on protecting white families and protecting white-owned businesses where black people worked and were being threatened.
0: The governor offered to send in the National Guard on January 5th, but the sheriff declined. Although a grand jury was convened after it was all over, no arrests were ever made, and none of the white mob was ever brought to trial. This event may remind
1: listeners of our pretty recent episode about the 1900 Robert Charles riots in New Orleans. In that event, a white mob terrorized New Orleans' Black community after a series of confrontations between Charles and police in which he r- wounded one officer and killed two others. But both events involved a white mob violently retaliating against a Black community the 1900 riot also included a lengthy standoff and shootout in which Robert Charles, who was surrounded and trapped in an upstairs bedroom, fired upon law enforcement, vigilantes and bystanders alike.
0: But the more direct comparison is the destruction of the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma, also known as Black Wall Street, in 1921. Our podcast on the Tulsa massacre and the destruction of Black Wall Street came out on July 28th, 2014.
1: The two massacres happened just a couple of years apart. And aside from that, both of them began after a rumor spread that a black man had raped a white woman. In both events, a white mob made its way through a black neighborhood, killing people and setting fire to buildings, ultimately completely destroying two independent, prospering black communities in two different states.
0: Also in both Florida and Oklahoma, There was news coverage at the time, but it was followed by a willful effort among the white population to erase these events from history. Both massacres were left out or glossed over in history books and were rarely discussed for decades after they happened. Survivors of Rosewood, afraid of retribution if they discussed it, also kept the incident a secret, even among their children, grandchildren, and spouses they later married. That started to change after 60 Minutes aired a report on the massacre on December 13th of 1983.
1: The big difference between Rosewood and Greenwood aside from obviously different locations and different specific people involved, is that in 1994, the state of Florida earmarked $2.1 million in reparations. This included $1.5 million of direct reparations to be paid to survivors who were still living, of which there were fewer than 15 at that point, as well as $500,000 to compensate people for lost property and a $100,000 scholarship
0: fund. The call for reparations for Greenwood, Oklahoma, on the other hand, was unsuccessful. The report of the officially convened Oklahoma Commission to Study the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921 strongly called for reparations. The state legislature opted to set up scholarships, a memorial, and an economic development initiative for Greenwood, but ultimately declined to pay direct reparations. This successful reparations bill
1: for Rosewood, I mean, successful in that reparations were actually paid. There were a lot of people who felt like that the amount of money was quite small once it was divided up among people. Uh, this, this effort was spearheaded by Steve Hanlon and Martha Barnett, who were doing a basically pro bono legal operation. Because the statute of limitations had passed, instead of taking the matter to court, they instead had to convince the Florida legislature to pass a claims bill. Governor Lawton Childs signed the bill into law on May 4th of 1994.
0: And there was a movie about all of this made in 1997. Uh, We are going to move on to some other incidents of history repeating itself after we first pause, because I think we could all use a quick break uh, to talk about a sponsor. Thanksgiving! It's a time to appreciate the loved ones in your life, but you can't always go visit everyone and have a meal with them and really just personally tell them how much you love them. But with 1-800-Flowers.com, no matter how far away you are, you can still send your love. 1-800-Flowers has beautiful bouquets for the people who mean the most to you. So, 1-800-Flowers.com has a vast selection of vibrant roses, lilies, daisies, and more. And the best part is they're affordable. They start at just twenty nine ninety nine. Delivering one 800 Flowers bouquets to the special people in your life is the perfect way to show them just how thankful you are. 1-800 Flowers works with premier farms around the world to ensure that you're getting the best flowers available for the best price possible. Every bouquet is backed by their 100% smile guarantee, so if you or your loved one have any issues with it, 1-800 Flowers is going to make it right. No matter what, no questions asked. To get beautiful and vibrant bouquets starting at just $29.99, go to 1-800Flowers.com on your desktop or mobile device, click on the radio icon and enter the code STUFF. That's 1-800-Flowers.com. Don't forget to click the radio icon and enter STUFF.
1: For whatever reason, very often when we talk about a historical fire, we are then inundated with requests to talk about other fires.
0: Yeah, people love to set off a chain reaction of of fire requests.
1: Well, and I'm not going to lie, the fires tend to be really hard. Yeah. In general, they tend to be quite similar. And in this case, there is just an uncanny amount of similarity.
0: On December 26th of 1811, a fire broke out in Richmond Theater in Richmond, Virginia. The house was packed, and because of the holiday season, many in attendance were families with children.
1: The cause of the fire was the stage lighting. In this case, it was a chandelier, one with candles, which set fire to a backdrop at the start of the third play, which was a a melodrama called Raymond and Agnes or The Bleeding Nun. This fire spread into the rafters, and soon burning debris was falling onto the stage, and the fire had spread into the house.
0: The actor playing Raymond stopped the show and announced the fire. And at that point, the crowd panicked. There were about 600 people in the theater, and many were trampled on the way to the theater's three exits, all of which opened inward rather than outward. Some made their escape by leaping from windows. 72 people were killed, including Richmond's mayor, George W. Smith, who got out safely but ran back inside to try to save his daughter. A U.S. senator named Abraham B. Venable was also killed, and 54 of the victims were women. With
1: the fact that it happened at Christmas time, the large number of women killed, the fact that it was stage lighting that had started the fire, and the panicked rush to exits that opened inward, it sounds so much like the December 30th, 1903 Iroquois Theater Fire, which we talked about on December 8th of 2014.
0: The biggest difference in these two stories is that the Richmond Fire predates most fire safety regulations and building codes that are intended to prevent loss of life in the event of a fire. The Iroquois theater, on the other hand, had been built in willful disregard for those laws and standards.
1: Yeah, I will say, I mean, in the United States, when I make that claim about, right. uh, about it being in a, that other parts of the world had different standards. So the other big difference is that... uh More laws and codes were passed after the Iroquois theater fire with the aim of making theaters safer for people, uh, including the standard that theater doors need to open outward from the audience and have to be opened just by pushing. Like, you can't have a weird, hard-to-figure-out closure for the door. After the Richmond fire, on the other hand, there was not a big push to make theaters safer. Instead, the biggest response was a lot of anti-theater sentiment, and the conclusion that the fire had been God's punishment against
0: the people of Richmond. So, to move on to our next Impossible episode. In 1803, Denmark became the first nation to ban the transatlantic slave trade. However, slavery itself still existed in Denmark's Caribbean colonies, particularly St. Croix, and that continued for quite some time. In this regard, it ended up being behind some other nations. Britain abolished slavery in its Caribbean colonies in 1833, although that was not fully in effect until 1838. And the delay between the announcement of abolition in 1833 and people actually being freed in 1838 was the reason behind the St. Kitts slave uprising of 1834, which we talked about on May 11th of 2015.
1: Denmark started discussing emancipating the people it had enslaved in the Caribbean in 1844. In 1847, the nation decided on a gradual abolition process. Children born after that point would be free rather than enslaved at their birth. And the institution of slavery would be entirely abolished in
0: 1859. So that left a 12-year window in which people were still enslaved. Just as the enslaved people of St. Kitts had not been satisfied with the idea that they would be unpaid, quote, apprentices doing the exact same work in the window between 1833 and 1838, the enslaved people of St. Croix were also not satisfied with the idea that they would need to wait 12 years for their freedom. On July 12, 1848, a slave uprising started on St. Croix, with the protesting population stopping their work burning down plantations and besieging the city of Frederickstead. One of the most prominent leaders was an enslaved man named John Gottlieb called General Budho. In response, Governor General
1: Peter von Schulten abolished slavery in St. Croix immediately, even though he actually did not have the authority to do this. He had been advocating for abolition for some time, so some people speculated that he and John Gottlieb had orchestrated the uprising and the abolition, although there's there's no historical evidence that that's what
0: actually happened. However, this immediate abolition didn't actually change much for the enslaved people of St. Croix. Their lives basically went on in the exact same way as they had before, although now they were, at least on paper, free the governor general also faced an immediate backlash from the plantation owners, so much so uh, that he had a mental health crisis and left the island of St. Croix. After being on paper
1: freed, St. Croix's newly uh, free labor force wound up being subject to an increasing set of more and more restrictive rules and penalties that were put in place on the plantations. This was so much so that there was another labor uprising in 1878, uh, at that point, three of its most vocal leaders were women who were known as Queen Mary, Queen Agnes, and Queen Matilda. This second uprising was a lot more destructive and deadly than the 1848 had, event had been. Uh, and then labor rights continued to be an issue afterward. So in both of these uprisings on St. Kitts and St. Croix, it, like there was, this, they were both motivated by the same delay between uh, an announced abolition and the actual abolition, and they... Both just, like, things continued to be basically the same afterward, except in the case of St. Croix. Uh, in theory, they were freed, but still doing the same work for the same people in
0: terrible conditions. Cheery. Mm-hmm. So we have one more impossible episode to go, and we talked about women pilots during World War II in Tracy's fantastic two-part interview with Dr. Katherine Sharp-Landek on the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or WASP, from March 21st and March 23rd of 2016. But the WASP were not the only women pilots serving in the war. In the U.S. Navy, there was another set of women who saw wartime duties. The Women Accepted for Voluntary Emergency Service, or WAVES. This was a segregated program. There were no black WAVES until Franklin D. Roosevelt ordered racial integration of the armed services.
1: Like the WASP, the WAVES program was established to recruit women to take on tasks that would free up men for active combat duty, their work was initially meant to take place only in non combat roles and only on the United States mainland, although that did expand a little bit later on.
0: A lot of this involved clerical and administrative work, although there were also a lot of women who, like the WASP, served as pilots, including working as flight instructors. They did other aviation work as well, including being mechanics and control tower operators. Some of the WAVES who had college educations in math, engineering, and physics also worked in more scientific roles. A total of more than 100,000 women served with the WAVES. While the WASP program was
1: disbanded in 1944 as the trajectory of the war shifted, the Waves were still in existence in 1948, and that's when the Women's Armed Services Integration Act made them a permanent part of the United States Navy. Although the Waves didn't initially serve overseas, the program was still in existence all the way through the U.S. involvement in the Korean War, and several thousand Waves did serve in Korea. The WAVES program itself existed until 1978, with the Navy stopped maintaining units exclusively for women and instead integrating women and men into one unit.
0: One of the most famous women to serve with the WAVES was Admiral Grace Hopper, who is definitely on the list for an episode of her very own.
1: Uh, to be clear, there was also a Women's Auxiliary Corps in the U.S. Army, and these three are all very distinct groups. Their overall stories have a lot of the same... Uh, elements of like a lot of resistance to having women in the service and a lot of suspicion that the women who were uh, serving were in some way disreputable, like a lot of the same themes of discrimination and sexism come up in all of these stories. Uh, so we're, we're not trying to leave out the Women's Auxiliary Corps. These are basically three distinct groups which have a ton of overlap in their stories, but also some distinct differences as
0: well. So that's six episodes that are so much like other episodes we already have that they will probably never be a freestanding episode of their own. Unless Uh, some magical additional piece of information is unearthed, and then they'll probably be an unearthed. (laughs) Yeah. It's convenient to have unearthed to tackle things like that
1: that come up sometimes. It is also almost the unearthed time of year. It is. Do you have some listener mail for us? I do. This listener mail is from Akasha. And Akasha says, Greetings! I finally caught up on some old episodes, such as the one featuring the Mongolfier brothers, and also listened to the most recent broadcast about the orphan tsunami. Both of these things rang bells to me for reasons completely unrelated to each other or history class, and I thought you might be amused by a couple of short stories. As soon as I heard you ladies discuss earthquakes in the the Pacific Northwest, you had my attention, even more so than usual. I grew up in, got out of, and ultimately returned to Port Angeles, Washington, on the Olympic Peninsula, about two hours west of Seattle. This past June, there was a major multiple-day earthquake-tsunami-disaster preparedness drill across western Washington. It was referred to as Cascadia Rising. The National Guard ran exercises alongside many local emergency response organizations and departments. And with all the brouhaha, for a while there was another uptick in conversations about disaster preparedness on this side of the Cascade Mountain Range. Honestly, until listening to the podcast, I didn't put together all the pieces as to why they named the drill Cascadia Rising. My public school education regarding Pacific Northwest history took place in the late 90s and early aughts. We talked about the earthquakes, of course, but I wouldn't be surprised if one or two of my middle school science teachers said something about the 1700 event at some point. My brain probably ditched the info as soon as I handed in the final test. I'm simultaneously grateful now to be more informed and a little embarrassed I made it so long without, know- without already knowing more about this. The other thing I wanted to mention is much sillier, but I find it delightful In high school, I was somewhat obsessed with the electro-pop synth-pop artist Ronnie Martin, operating under the label Joy Electric. In 2005, he released an EP titled Mongolfier and the Romantic Balloons, a mini-concept album with the title track October 1783, The Romantic Balloons. It was the first time I ever heard of the Mongolfiers, but being 16, I didn't bother to research the lyrics any further, and eventually I just forgot I hadn't thought about that particular song in a long time. It was a delight to revisit, inspired by your episode, and with a more thorough perspective. If you give it a listen, I hope you're half as charmed as I was and still am. Thank you for uh, all you ladies do and the random circles like these two instances that your work inadvertently help so many people close. Sincerely, Akasha. Thank you, Akasha. I'm going to put a link to that song in our show notes. Um, we've had a number of people write to us about disaster preparedness drills and other disaster preparedness things in the Pacific Northwest since that episode came out. Somebody tweeted at us a like, uh, like a public service announcement style comic about oh, yeah 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 about earthquakes and tsunami, and I read it, and I was kind of traumatized because some of the characters in this comic are are three kayakers who are caught up in this tsunami, um, and and they leave it with one, one of the kayakers not knowing, uh, where their friends are. And so I got to the end and I was like, but are they okay? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was a little distressed by that. So, uh, I'll try to remember to put a link to that in the show notes also. Uh if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at history Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash missed in history and on Twitter at Mist in History. Our Tumblr is missinhistry dot com. We're on Pinterest, Pinterest.com slash missed in history. Our Instagram is in history. Basically everything except for our email address is just miss in history. Yeah. At, at whatever the place is. Uh, you can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you can find show notes for all of our episodes we've worked on, an archive of every episode that has ever existed, lots of cool stuff. You can also come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, to research anything your heart desires. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com.